0: Hello, and welcome to the episode about Leo, Venus in Leo, and Venus retrograde in Leo. This is Sean. And as I was figuring out what to say in this very short intro, I kept thinking about the Wizard of Oz movie, because Leo has to do with the heart. And the Tin Man, of course, sings his song with the lyrics, I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental, regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. But I haven't been able to quite figure out how to say those in an appropriate way to introduce the episode because it's not if, but I like the lyrics all the same. So I decided to look up the chart for the Wizard of Oz movie which opened nationwide in the United States on August 25th, 1939. And in that chart, I see Venus at 28 degrees of Leo. And I thought, huh, that's the same degree in the same sign that Venus is stationing retrograde in 2023. Well, that works. So we'll use that as the intro. So it's time for a heart-to-heart, in all the world's a stage, Leo, Venus in Leo, and Venus retrograde in Leo. This is Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Welcome again to Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard, and you can find me on the web at ImagineAstrology.com. On the website, you can find recordings of talks I've given at different astrology schools and conferences. You can find some articles and blog posts that I've written over the years. You can find every episode of the podcast. You can schedule a reading with me and you can sign up for my newsletter. First off, I want to tell you what's in store for this episode. All the world's a stage, Leo, Venus in Leo and Venus retrograde in Leo. I always like to start with a table of contents for the episode. And this goes back to high school. I loved English classes. And one day, Miss Jacoby was returning papers to us. She set the paper on my desk and said, Very good, Sean. Can I talk to you after class? "Uh Uh-oh. I said, sure. So after class, I was talking with Miss Jacoby, and she said, I see a lot of promise in your writing, but I'd like to help show you how to structure your thoughts. And I remember this like it was yesterday. She showed me how to create an outline, how to organize my thoughts. And I've been doing that ever since what's in store for this episode. Most importantly, I want to firmly establish the nature of Leo in the heart. So that's what a big part of this episode is about. And I want to firmly establish the nature of Venus in Leo and its connection to the heart. So we're going to take a roundabout way to get there. But if you keep those two points in mind, it should all work out. I'm going to start by talking about Leo and the sun and the heart. Now, if you don't have any planets in Leo, don't worry. This is still relevant because I'm working on the assumption that you have a heart and Leo rules the heart. And to talk about Leo and the heart... I'm going to draw from an incredible essay by James Hillman called The Thought of the Heart from his book, The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World. And once we've got that set up, I'll talk about Venus and the heart of beauty. And then finally, I have some charts to talk about to illustrate various ways that Venus in Leo and Venus retrograde in Leo show up. And basically using the framework of Venus's movement through the sign of Leo, which goes back to June 5th, when Venus entered Leo, and takes us through to October 8th, when Venus enters the sign of Virgo. And I find it super fascinating that the very first thing Venus got up to when entering Leo was an opposition to Pluto, same day. And as the retrograde station approached at 28 degrees, which occurs the weekend of the 21st, the talk everywhere in the United States and elsewhere in the world is Barbenheimer, because the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer are opening on the same weekend. And could they be more different? But fittingly, at a first glance, one of them is very Venus, Very Venusian, and the other is strikingly Plutonic. We'll let you decide which is which. But it has set a tone for this whole time Venus is in Leo. So off we go. Generally speaking, Leo is known to be a theatrical sign, it's a fire sign. It's very spirited. Leo is creative and fun, and playful. After all, this is summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Even though the days are getting shorter, the days are still long. When I think of Leo, I often think of the volleyball scene from Top Gun and playing with the boys. Of course, in a natal chart, other factors can shade this, where play might be challenging, creativity might be challenging, but at the heart of Leo is theater and creativity Leo is symbolized by the lion, the king of the jungle, and has an inherent royal, dignified quality about it. It's ruled by the sun, and the rays of the sun shining out are like the mane of the lion. And like I said, Leo rules the heart. I can't help but think of Carl Jung, who was born with the sun in Leo, who said, I am a man who cannot excuse himself from the discord of the human heart. And I also can't help but think of the fact that in the United States, heart disease is the number one killer and has been for quite a while, and that complicates things. So that's why I want to swing wide and set the scene for what could be a very significant way of approaching this Leo season, but more importantly, Venus's retrograde in Leo. What is the spirit of the times in which the sun is moving into Leo? The spirit of the times in which Venus will be moving retrograde. And for that, I turn to Olga Tokarczuk, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, and who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2018. And not too long ago, I discovered an essay that she wrote in 2022, where she does a brilliant job of capturing the spirit of the times, along with the spirit of the depths. You can find a link to the essay in the show notes for this episode. It's a long and expansive essay, so I just want to read one section of it. So this is Olga Tokarczuk, translated from Polish by Jennifer Croft. She says... It used to be that the world was vast and unimaginable. Now, imagination is no longer useful to us. We have everything at our fingertips on our smartphone. There used to be blank spots on the carefully prepared maps of the world, fueling the imagination and acting as a warning to human hubris. When preparing for a journey, people assumed they would never return. Setting out, preceded by the drawing up of a will, was a limit event that began a process of initiation, a process of transformation, the result of which could neither be known nor well understood. Paradoxically speaking, we lived in a world that was open to imagination. A world with barely sketched borders, filled with the unknown. That world demanded new stories and new forms. It shape shifted ceaselessly, ceaselessly being created before our very eyes. Today, the world fits into our calendar, our watch. We can conceive of it, it fits within our imagination. Within three days, we can be anywhere we want, with a few uninteresting exceptions. The blank spaces on the maps have been filled in hermetically by Google Maps, which, with vicious precision, shows us every backstreet. In addition, it is more or less the same everywhere. The same things, artifacts, ways of thinking, money, brands, logos. Being exotic or unique is a scarce commodity. More and more, it disappears from everyday life and becomes a gadget. Like in a Baltic resort, where an entire Thai restaurant has been imported from Thailand. Or in the lowlands of Central Europe, where a gigantic complex was set up in imitation of the tropics. Thanks to the device that fits in your hand or in your lap... You can, at any time, talk with family thousands of kilometers away, in a different climate classification, at a totally different hour, and even a different season. A tourist on an expedition in Tibet can connect in a few seconds with home in a Polish town, I don't know how to pronounce, or Schenectady, People who would never have had the chance to meet can now be in touch through social media. To our five senses, the world has become, again, small. On the other hand, it is breathtaking to see the globe in a picture from space taken by a human being, a little blue-green orb dangling in an abyss. For the first time in history, we can perceive our planetary place as finite and limited, fragile and prone to ruin. Added to this is the feeling of being crowded, of finite space, crampedness, the constant presence of others. The feeling of finitude in experiencing the world becomes claustrophobic. No wonder that we've been dreaming more and more lately about trips in outer space, about leaving our old home, which has turned out to be too familiar, too tight, too cluttered. This perception of the reduction and finitude of the world is intensified by being online and widespread surveillance. Yes, yes, we are already living in the panopticon. We are constantly being seen, watched, and analyzed. The feeling of finitude makes everything banal, since only what does not yield to our understanding can awaken our enthusiasm and retain the wonderful status of mystery. Again, that was Olga Tokarczuk, translated from the Polish by Jennifer Croft. You can read the whole essay at the link in the show notes and see the image on which she based the entire essay, an image entirely relevant and very familiar to astrologers. I love the essay so much because she captures that sense of not infinity, the finite. This is a change that I've experienced in my lifetime. It's also something I tried to capture in my article in The Mountain Astrologer called Pluto in Aquarius, The Center Cannot Hold. What Olga does so beautifully as a Nobel Laureate parallels what I was writing in the article. When I read Olga's essay, I hear Pluto in the later degrees of Capricorn. If you read the article, which will also be linked in the show notes, or if you listen to episode one of this podcast, where I talk about that article, where I said, it's as if we have reached a profound limit. And I was talking about walls and the presence of Saturn, the ruler of Capricorn. And I had my list, which still goes on today where there's a focus, particularly in Western culture, on the old. You know, the day that Pluto moved back into Capricorn after spending a little time in Aquarius, the Tony award for best musical went to Kimberly Akimbo, a musical about a teenage girl who ages so quickly that she's caught in the body of a 72 year old woman. And this emphasis on the old, this emphasis on the walls, this emphasis on limits is to say things have gotten old, which is what Olga is talking about. I feel she beautifully describes Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn without ever talking about astrology. And it's this sense in the world right now, in the zeitgeist, that we've reached the limits of the world Now what? So just to reiterate, my sense of the spirit of the times, astrologically speaking, is a consciousness dominated by Saturn, and what it's like as a globe to reach a collective limit signified by the pandemic, by Saturn's conjunction with Pluto in the sign of Capricorn, and what to do next. And with this dominance of Saturn— the Lord of the finite, the Lord of time. If we go back to the Wizard of Oz, when the wizard gives the Tin Man his heart, sorry, if that's a spoiler, if you look carefully in that scene, the heart that the wizard gives the Tin Man is actually a clock, which is so culturally relevant. It's as if the beating of the heart has been replaced by the ticking of the clock. The heartbeat replaced by the tick-tock. And while, of course, many, many things make up culture and the spirit of the times, I love that Kylie Minogue, the singer, has had her first hit in quite a while with a song called Padam Padam, which is the beating of the heart. It goes in contrast to something I read about in the New York Times a while back, talking about how researchers analyzed more than 150,000 pop songs released between 1965 and 2015. Over that time, the appearance of the word love in top 100 hits roughly halved. Meanwhile, the number of times such songs contained negative emotion words like hate rose sharply. Now, of course, 1965 is when Saturn was in Pisces. So over the course of two Saturn cycles, the question becomes, where is the love and the beating of the heart? I like to imagine the the fixed signs each having their own kind of rhythm. It's part of the fixity, the steadiness of a rhythm, where Taurus, in a way, is the natural rhythms of the earth, hooked into perhaps the circadian rhythms. And keep in mind, of course, Taurus is famous for its slowness, taking its time, no rush. Leo, as I've said, is the beating of the heart. It's the heartbeat, the padam padam. Scorpio, we might say, is the rhythms of intimacy, of sex. And Aquarius, I like to imagine, I call it a different beat. Aquarius moves to a different beat. It's like the wild card. In some ways, I think of the music, the pop music and other music, moving from the 1980s into the 1990s into the 2000s, and how wildly variant the rhythms of the music have become as planets during those times moved through Aquarius. So for our purposes today, with Leo, Venus in Leo, and Venus retrograde in Leo, we want to focus on the heartbeat, that beating of the heart. What is the heart up to when we've reached the limits of the world? But this affects astrology too, because I can't help, but think about how never before in the history of humanity have so many people been looking up to the skies. And I mean that symbolically because most astrologers are looking at a computer screen or looking down at a piece of paper, not necessarily actually looking up at the stars in the sky. But you get my point. Never before have so many people been turning to the stars. Never before have there been so many astrologers Looking at so many points in the chart, seven traditional planets, add the modern planets and planetoids, add Chiron and the other centaurs, add thousands and thousands of asteroids and the fixed stars and the lots. There are lots of lots. And if you've ever actually seen one of those charts printed out where it has tons of items included, it can look like a thicket of thorns trying to break through all of that. So that's why I think this time in Leo, especially with Venus in Leo, is so important because we want to go back to the heart. I recently in an episode talked about the sign of cancer and the moon and the metal silver, Leo and the sun brings us the gold much sought after gold. And while this does relate to literal gold, gold is far more symbolic. I recently saw a production of Stephen Sondheim's into the woods at the Guthrie theater. It's a wonderful production where Sondheim took a bunch of different fairy tales and the main characters and had them all head into the woods together, into the thick of things. And one of those characters is Jack and his beanstalk, which climbs higher and higher into the sky, into the heavens, allowing Jack to bring down the hen that lays the golden egg and a magic golden harp. Something about gold Draws us to the heavens, to the infinite. There's a Jewish folk song called "De Golden Apava," the golden peacock, and what it's like when the golden peacock flies off. And perhaps that's a good metaphor while we live at the limits of the world. Now I call this episode "All the World's a Stage," referring, of course, to the theatrical nature of Leo. But I think of how. Olga Tokarczuk captured something about the globe. And of course, all the world's a stage is a phrase that comes from Shakespeare. And the theater in which Shakespeare's plays were performed was called the globe. As a reminder that when you're watching Romeo and Juliet, or you're watching Henry V, It's as if you're watching stories that get played out on the world stage all the time at an archetypal level. So to bring this back to archetypes, if Saturn is dominating consciousness, and Saturn is the god of time, and time is most often imagined as linear, moving forward and backward, all this has been leading up to the fact that the Sun in astrology represents the soul and the soul isn't linear. The soul, the sun, gold, brings in timelessness and timelessness does not have a timeline. It's not linear. The soul moves in circles, circles back. The sun is the circle of life. Taylor Swift actually grasps this in a really profound way. Where at the age of 19, she was writing lyrics like, time breaks down your mind and body. Don't you let it touch your soul. So for our purposes, there are essential things in the soul that we circle back to time and time again. These are the archetypes. That's one way to talk about it. These things that we circle back to again and again, that we can't seem to let go of, we probably don't want to let go of, because these are the governing patterns of the soul. Sometimes I think the ultimate governing pattern of the soul is perhaps the circle. So I want to emphasize again that the soul circles back and circles back, like Taylor Swift going back to December all the time. Reflecting on a relationship that went bad, she sings, I go back to December all the time. I go back to December, turn around and make it alright. I go back to December, turn around and change my own mind. So when I talk about Venus later and Venus retrograde, if you dread Venus retrograde or any retrograde, it might come from the fact that often retrograde is talked about as if it stretched out on a linear timeline like we're on a bed of Procrustes that mythic image of laying on the bed and being stretched and stretched and stretched that can make going backwards pretty difficult and uncomfortable, but there's actually something naturally retrograde in the soul. There's something naturally retro in the soul. It circles back. So I thought to look up the chart for that song back to December, The original version was released as a single on November 15th, 2010, when Venus in the sky was retrograde in the sign of Libra. That's not just on point, that makes the song iconic for talking about Venus retrograde, particularly when it comes to relationships. But with Leo as the sign of the theater, as the sign of creativity and playfulness and fun, it's about so much more than relationships. Venus and Leo is about so much more than relationships. Because when you think of creativity and you think of music, yes, a lot of songs are about love. Yes, a lot of songs are about relationship. They are about what Carl Jung would refer to as the discord of the human heart. And most songs, if you listen to them, circle back They circle back to the chorus. And if you open it up to symphonies, symphonies born from the composer's hearts. Symphonies are actually incredibly psychological. They capture human dynamics that cannot and will never fit into the DSM manual, whatever number those are on. So we're speaking about creativity when we're going into Leo. Creativity that comes from the heart and with that, I want to turn to James Hillman, The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World. The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World is a book by James Hillman, published in 1992. It's made up of two different long essays. The first is The Thought of the Heart, and the second is The Soul of the World. Right now, we're interested in The Thought of the Heart, which was actually a talk Hillman first gave in 1979, and then published it later that same year, and then published it again in 1984 and 1987. So it's been around a while, and I find its ideas are more relevant today than ever, especially considering everything I've talked about so far. Hillman organizes the essay into two different sections. The first, is called the captive heart. And the second is called the heart of beauty. We're going to focus on the captive heart and then use the heart of beauty, which is about Aphrodite to step off and talk much more astrologically about Leo and Venus and Leo in particular. We're going to put these pieces together. What does the heart have to do with beauty? And starting with the captive heart, we already have a provocative premise. My heart is captive? It's worth noting that James Hillman was born with either Pluto in Cancer on the Ascendant or in the first house at least, depending on which chart you use, Cancer Rising or Gemini Rising. But he was a sun in Aries closely conjunct the moon in Aries with Neptune in Leo trining at the midpoint between his sun and moon. So he has Neptune in Leo. And as a depth psychologist, he goes deep immediately. And Hillman's interest was always the soul. When he talks in this essay about the captive heart, He first establishes the nature of the heart, and then what is holding it captive so that we might free it. He's indebted to the work of Henri Corbin, a French philosopher whose work, like Hillman's, is founded in the imagination. So in this essay, Hillman first establishes, and I quote, the primary principle that the thought of the heart is the thought of images. That the heart is the seat of imagination. That imagination is the authentic voice of the heart. So that if we speak from the heart, we must speak imaginatively. End quote. That's a big one. The heart is the seat of imagination. Imagination is the authentic voice of the heart. And he goes on to say, again I quote, that we are bereft in our culture of an adequate psychology and philosophy of the heart, and therefore also of the imagination. Our hearts cannot apprehend that they are imaginatively thinking hearts, because we have so long been told that the mind thinks and the heart feels, and that imagination leads us astray from both. I want to repeat that one. We have so long been told that the mind thinks and the heart feels, and that imagination leads us astray from both. Remember, this is from 1979, when he first started putting this out there. I'm not sure much has moved in the culture, except perhaps on individual levels since then. I certainly grew up with what he's talking about, that the mind thinks and the heart feels. He also goes with the premise, like Jung, that there is an autonomy in the psyche. This goes back to William Butler Yeats. It goes back to James Joyce. It goes back to Camus where we don't pick the images that are inherent in our soul. I think it goes all the way back to Plato, who said the soul never thinks without a picture. And the way that I like to think of this is when you go to sleep at night, you don't pick the dream that you have. And sometimes people will say to me, oh, but you can if you train yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what Hillman is talking about. It's that there are these inherent images in the soul that the soul reveals to us, that the soul shows to us, that the heart reveals to us. So right away, Hillman makes this point, this important point, that the images that we believe we make up are actually presented to us as not of our making. And this is the root of the authenticity in the heart. When you are in touch with these images, you are authentically in touch with the soul. It's like Yeats said, our images must be given to us. We cannot choose them deliberately. And of course, Yeats was a poet and another Nobel laureate, I really like Nobel laureates because they really capture some of the most vital parts of the soul and the imagination. Now choosing images deliberately is a part of life, part of creativity, how you bring it into the spirit of the times, but in the spirit of the depths, it's about making contact with what's already there, what you were born with. And if that sounds confusing, I want to suggest that you're probably much more familiar with this than you realize. Just never maybe thought of it this way, or conceived of it this way, or have heard it presented this way. And we'll get more into that. This idea that we do not choose. As Hillman goes on in The Captive Heart, he describes three different kinds of hearts that are actually disguising the authentic nature of the heart from us. Now, I've read this essay multiple times, and every time I read it, I get something new from it because of how my life has moved since the previous time I read it and what I'm open to hearing when I read it the next time. So what you're getting here, as I explain these three different hearts that Hillman presents to us, is my understanding as well, and how we can recognize them in the modern world, how I recognize them. The first heart he talks about is the heart of the lion, cœur de lion. The second heart he calls the heart of Harvey, and that's William Harvey, and we'll get there. And the third heart is called the heart of Augustine. And when he's talking about these three hearts, These are ways that the heart is imagined that can get in the way of our own heart's imaginings because they are so dominant. And like Hillman does so well, he reaches down underneath each of these to get back to that authentic heart. He loosens the hold that these hearts have on us. He says the first of these hearts, the heart of the lion, I quote comes from folklore, astrology, symbolic medicine, physiognomy. The heart of the lion is like the sun round and full and whole. The classic symbolisms of this heart are gold, king, redness, soul, S O L sulfur, heat, it glows in the center of our being and radiates outward, magnanimous, paternal, encouraging." Quote. I think anyone familiar with astrology can recognize Leo in a lot of these descriptions. That's why he says the first of these hearts comes in part from astrology. Astrology is one of those sources of this heart. But Hillman is looking to go deeper than that, to get underneath the lion because the way of imagining the heart as the lion has taken such a hold on things that it might just be getting in the way. It doesn't mean that it's not entirely relevant. It just means it's not the whole story. And like he says, it presents itself as the whole, as wholehearted, the whole heart. And the way that I understand this and think about this is how the sun rules Leo naturally, but the sun can be in any of the 12 astrological signs. So maybe the heart as the lion, isn't so relevant to the sun in Pisces, where we want to go into the ocean, into the fish, into the nature of the fish. But the heart as the lion is the king of the jungle. If you want to see this heart on full display, you can of course, watch the Lion King. This is that heart. This is the particular heart that's rooted in the history of Kings, in the history of Monarchs. And it's worth noting while we're at this time of flux between Pluto leaving Capricorn, entering Aquarius, going back into Capricorn and entering Aquarius again, Because with Pluto in Aquarius, of course, it was the French Revolution that dealt a lethal blow to the monarchy, to the whole notion of monarchy, opening up a path to another way of imagining society, another way of imagining the world. And it's the trouble with this lion heart is its association with monarchy. Because if we take apart that word, it's like mono and archetypal. Mono as one and archetypal as archetypal. But it's like one archetype to rule them all. So this heart can certainly rule with dignity and courage, but it might also wittingly or unwittingly be very limited. This is the heart that has young Simba singing, I just can't wait to be king. I just can't wait to rule. This is Jack in Titanic, hailing that he's king of the world. Now, if we look at the Leo-Aquarius axis, and I've done this in talks I've given about Pluto and Aquarius, where Leo is ruled by the heart. Leo rules the heart and is the center and Aquarius moves us away from the center to the edges. But if Leo is this king, and we go back to Aquarius as the people, as the folk, and work backward toward the Leo son in terms of historically who rules in this patriarchal line, it goes from the people to the father, the dad at home, and it goes to the father as priest in the church. So it's the archetype of the father and it's the monarch who rules alone, which brings in the divine right of kings because it's the king of the jungle or a country. And I think what Hillman is getting at is that before we get focused on the king, the son was imagined as the divine, as the God figure, to the moon's goddess. So the heart of the lion holds the heart captive by imagining monarchy, by imagining the king, by imagining empire. One very profound thing I've learned from my friend Carol Ferris, the astrologer, who's brilliant with Eastern philosophies linking with astrology, is that the goal of the emperor was to stay connected to the divine. It's like a one-point program, to stay connected with the divine in the heart. And when that's intact, the emperor is ruling from the heart. And if we follow the history of emperors, kings, and monarchs in the West, there was a disconnect. I could be wrong, but I think it comes particularly around Henry VIII and the excommunication from the church but if we keep it broad, you get my point. Ultimately, this heart of the lion is what psychologically reduces things to the ego level, where the ego thinks it's king. Instead of perhaps the ego as simply one archetype among countless other archetypes in the soul, the ego can co-opt everything, which might just be part of what we're seeing happening a lot in the world. And the ego tends to move outward, like this heart of the lion, not inward. So the heart of the lion gets caught in the ego and the sense of one archetype to rule them all. For example, Saturn. Saturn might take over everything. So while we talk about Venus, we talk about the sun and Leo and Virgo and Libra and astrology it might all come through the lens of Saturn, for example. That's how this can work. And Hillman suggests that an adequate psychology for the soul is much more polyarchetypal, polytheistic, the heart open to imagine what it imagines. So moving from the heart of the lion, the next heart that Hillman talks about holding us captive I find this one particularly fascinating. He calls it The Heart of Harvey. And this comes from William Harvey. And it's linked with the scientific revolution, the era of the scientific revolution. Because William Harvey wrote a book about the heart. Now, if you get this title, you'll hear right away where this might be a little limited, where it might hold something captive. It's called anatomical exercise on the motion of the heart and blood in animals published in Latin in 1628 anatomical exercise on the motion of the heart and blood in animals. I think in particular, if you go back to my podcast episode about Pluto in Aquarius, where I talk about the scientific age, this is when Pluto was in Aquarius It's the changes in society, scientific thoughts, scientific imagining. It's the scientific imagining that led to the enlightenment, the age of reason. This is where Hillman points out, with this heart, that I quote, the transfiguration of our Western culture into an industrial egalitarianism with materialistic values, first required Harvey's transformation of the heart. The king had first to become a machine, and the machine become a spare part, interchangeable from any chest to any other. End quote. Now that's a hefty thing to say, and Hillman is beautifully relentless going after this heart. This is the scientific heart. The heart studied the anatomical heart. It's describing the heart in intense detail at the literal level, turning it into a pump. Hillman is particularly sharp in this section because he's so passionate about how this interferes with our imagination. Now, it is a way of imagining things. It's just the ramifications of imagining things this way on the heels of the heart of the lion. It's what makes the scientific imagination vulnerable to thinking of itself as the only way of imagining things. That's been the difficult part, but this is the heart that gets me on the treadmill. So it's very much a part of modern life in fitness, in gyms. This is the unfit heart that we need to make fit and maintain fitness of. This is the heart that might have me convinced when I'm on the treadmill that all of those numbers on the dashboard connected with this little red symbol of a heart are actually telling me whether my heart is healthy or not. This is the heart held captive by numbers. You know, I've seen the commercial. There's actually an app with a little device that can on your phone do an EKG. And one of the points here, I believe, is that the numbers may tell you that your heart is healthy, but the numbers may be deceiving if the heart isn't connected to that authenticity at its root. This is the heart, when studied scientifically, on the heels of the heart of the lion, the whole heart, the sense of wholeheartedness, suddenly changes because science sees that there's a wall in the heart that divides the heart into two sections and it must pump the blood through the circulatory system from one side of the heart all the way around to the other. So this is the heart once whole that can now become divided. And this is the heart vulnerable to attack. One of the things I did when I was preparing this episode in the wandering way that I prepare episodes, is I made a little playlist of heart songs, including song titles like The Hardest Heart, Harden My Heart, and Heart Attack by Olivia Newton-John. The heart of Harvey is the heart that can attack us. And on the heels of the lion, it's a lion that can attack us and take us down. The way that Hillman works through this, I would love to read the whole section to you, but I'll leave that up to you. It's where he suggests that a term like heart infarction, you know, the clogging of the arteries that leads to a heart attack, isn't perhaps just from eating too many Cheetos, but is actually because the images authentic in your heart may not be circulating, may not be in circulation. So it may be clogged up images that lead to this kind of a heart having a heart attack. See, Hillman moves so well between the literal and the poetic, the metaphorical and the imaginative, to always keep loosening up the hold that the literal has on us, to get back to that imaginative place. So left to my own devices, I call this heart of Harvey I I think of it as when, you know, I really like being on the treadmill in natural light because the gym I go into has a wall of windows. And so I turn off the light when I'm the only one in the gym. I've even been known to get on the treadmill at 11 p.m. at night when it's dark and work out with the light of the moon shining through the windows. But then somebody comes in and turns on the light and the place is flooded with ugly fluorescent light. Ugh. So I call this heart of Harvey, the fluorescent heart. It's the neon heart. It might even be the LED heart. This is the heart that Iron Man gets in the Marvel movies. This is the heart that keeps Iron Man alive. This is the electric heart. It's the heart that is supposedly healthy because a number says it is. And it's interesting that the way Harvey talks about the circulation of the blood from one side of the heart throughout the body around back to the other side of the heart. Because when I say that the soul moves in circles, that is how the heart operates with the blood in the body. But when it's so literalized and talked about in such a literal way, it's like that operation game. We are trying to pick the little pieces out of the body without touching the edges and it buzzes, except what's getting extracted is the imagination. So just a little summary here, there's obviously more ways to it than just this, but a way to track where we're heading is that the heart of the lion makes us vulnerable to one archetype to rule them all instead of opening up the imagination it makes us vulnerable to focus on the external world. And then the heart of Harvey makes us vulnerable to the scientific heart being the one heart to rule them all. And this leads us to the third heart that Hillman identifies, which he calls the heart of Augustine, St. Augustine. Hillman says, and I quote, More than the lion and the pump, it is the heart of Augustine that has most affected psychology, both as a field of thought and as everyday life, where heart means feeling my own interior nature, the secret chamber of my person. End quote. So, this is the one that I'll probably elaborate on the least because it's so easily understood as the reason we think the heart is the place of feeling and the mind is the place of thinking. This is the personal heart where the way that I feel, the way that I feel becomes the most important thing in a way when the tin man sings, if I only had a heart, this is the heart that the tin man is wishing to have. This is the heart on the heels of the scientific revolution and the heart of Harvey. It's the heart that the Tin Man receives from the wizard, which in Western culture currently has a clock in the center. The feeling that I don't have enough time, the feeling that I need to rush around. And because this heart takes on such a personal level, it can leave us feeling isolated and alone, especially when going through difficult times. This is the heart that confuses the personal and the archetypal. This is the heart that gets locked into the spirit of the times with that clock, with no access to the spirit of the depths, completely forgetting about the spirit of the depths. This is the heart that Jung confronted in the Red Book. Jung's heart in the Red Book is released from this captivity the moment he realized the archetypal nature of the soul. In recognizing the archetypal nature of the soul, he freed himself from this captivity, and in fact discovered, and he says it so well in the Red Book, how he was being held captive. When I think of this heart, I think of how different psychological diagnoses go in and out of fashion, And when Freud and Jung were up to essentially founding a depth psychology of the West, the diagnosis that was in fashion was hysteria, which is like a heart held captive because it's only personal and it's overwhelmed and can't deal. If you're familiar with that musical, Into the Woods, that I was talking about earlier, which I highly recommend, there's a beautiful song near the end where the baker sings, No more. After dealing with everything that he's been dealing with, he says, No more feelings. Time to close the door. Just no more. That's this heart. I can't take it. But when the heart is reconnected to that archetypal level, when it opens up to the archetypal level, goes to the soul, gets underneath this heart, Underneath the heart of the scientific revolution, underneath even the heart of the lion, back to that imagining heart. The soul knows it can handle it, because the soul knows that all the world's a stage, and that what we go through as individual human beings is archetypal. That is why we still read Shakespeare today. Shakespeare was not held captive by any of these hearts. The way that Hillman talks about the heart of Augustine is that it is the subjective heart, the personal heart, the subjective heart. And I think this is the heart that I would say, when looking at what's in fashion in terms of psychological diagnoses, this heart is the root of narcissism. This is the heart that drives out imagination. And as Hillman points out, when imagination is driven out, there remains only subjectivity, the heart of Augustine. So that's what I bring you from the first part of this essay, the thought of the heart. And before moving on to the heart of beauty, I want to hook us into and remind us that there are essential images in your soul. We can call them archetypal images but their images and imagination all the same. So while we're sitting here living at the limits of the world, wondering what now, the suggestion from depth psychology is that the answer, or the answers, are to be found in the soul. That when we follow the heart, we are following imagination. And one of the cues for that heart free from captivity is what we're attracted to, which brings us to the heart of beauty. everything I've talked about so far, let's file under the sun and Leo, the nature of the heart as an imaginative heart, a heart rooted in imagination. Now the rest of this podcast is going to be about Venus and Venus in Leo. Once we have established this imaginative heart, this heart with essential images, where we can now take a look at the heart of beauty. So again, the second half of Hillman's essay, the thought of the heart is called the heart of beauty, which I'm going to refer to just a little bit and then riff on my own. I love talking about Venus. And if you listened to my podcast episode about Saturn in Pisces, Near the end, I had a section on Venus's exaltation in Pisces, which becomes relevant while Saturn is moving through the sign of Pisces. And this Venus retrograde period is where it becomes quite important. So if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go listen to that. But to clear the way for this section, I want to read a poem. It's from a book called Love Poems from God. This is Saint John of the Cross, interpreted by Daniel Ladinsky. And this is the essence of desire. I did not have to ask my heart what it wanted because of all the desires I have ever known. Just one did I cling to, for it was the essence of all desire, to hold beauty in my soul's arms. Well, I could just end the podcast here because that says it all, but that wouldn't make for a very interesting podcast. So this is where we go back to the dates. When Venus entered Leo on June 5th and makes her way through the sign of Leo, eventually entering the sign of Virgo on October 8th, So it's a long time in Leo. And I often think of retrograde periods as emphasizing a point where if Venus's move through Leo is a sentence and you're reading that sentence, there's a section in the middle that's in bold and that's the retrograde period from July 22nd to September 3rd. And I want to mention Venus and the connection with the feminine. We're living in a time where gender is loosening up. Gender roles have been loosening up for quite a while. And now gender itself is loosening up. And I just want to emphasize that that is at the human level. It has archetypal influences, but there's a big difference between Venus aligning with the feminine and then aligning the feminine only to women, only to literal human women. Because Venus is a goddess, a timeless goddess, and humans are human. And I'm saying this in advance of the chart examples because it'll come up in there probably the clearest. But archetypally and mythically, the feminine would be associated with the goddesses, and there are so many goddesses, Artemis is feminine, as much as Hestia is feminine, as much as Venus Aphrodite is feminine. So the clearest thing to do, instead of just talking about the feminine, is to go into the descriptions and the dynamics of those specific goddesses and others, because Athena is a very different kind of feminine than Venus and Aphrodite. And when we get down to the human level, we operate with a mixture of all of the archetypes. So for the rest of this podcast, when I speak of the feminine, it will be Venusian, and it's applying to any gender, male, female, or otherwise. Because as human beings, we're actually the caboose on this train, where the engine is the soul and the engine is imagination, The engine is the heart, that imaginative heart. There's actually something Jung said that totally cracks me up. And I file it under the Jung that nobody quotes, but I actually love quoting the Jung that nobody quotes. So this is from volume 10 of the Collected Works, Civilization in Transition. And he says, the word human sounds very beautiful, But properly understood, it does not mean anything particularly beautiful or virtuous or intelligent, but just a low average, end quote. That's us, just a low average. Thanks, Jung. But what he's saying, or the way that I understand it, is that we're the caboose on the train that starts with the soul as the engine that starts with Venus as an engine, that starts with a goddess as an engine. You know, we can climb the beanstalk and we can try to get that gold, but it's something we strive for. But we're not Venus. We're not the gold. We're human. And that symbolic striving for the gold, whatever it may be, is something that makes life worth living for so many people. So one of the things that Hillman points out is that in the myth of Cupid and Psyche of Eros and Psyche, as the Tin Man says, the boy who shoots the arrows and the Psyche with Psyche meaning soul is that in that myth, in that story, Psyche, the soul worships in the temple of Venus, not another temple, The soul worships in the temple of Venus, in the temple of beauty. And if we just back up for a second, back to those dates, you know, Venus entered Leo on June 5th and immediately was opposite Pluto. But as Venus moves through Leo, she will square Jupiter three times, three times because of the retrograde, and she'll square Uranus three times. I'll specifically be addressing these. But part of why I spent so much time on the captive heart is because Jupiter and Uranus are planets of freedom. It's a piece of their nature. So Venus here might just escort us out of captivity, where we feel we are being held captive. Venus stations retrograde on July 22nd. The Sun and Venus will be conjunct on August 13th which is the midway point of the retrograde. Venus will station direct on September 3rd, before moving into Virgo on October 8th. In astrology, we know Venus as the planet that symbolizes values and relationships, how we relate to people. And much of a Venus retrograde period gets dominated by talk of relationships, which I'm going to suggest here while Venus is in Leo, to use the phrase we're familiar with now, is actually holding Venus captive by limiting her to relationships. And part of this is when the heart of the lion is so strong, caught in the monarch, the one ruler, caught in the ego, the isolation is what makes the focus on relationships so dominant. So I want to take a step back and instead of relationships, talk about attraction. What are we attracted to? Not just who are we attracted to, but what are you attracted to? What are your favorite things? And that's a very broad subject. But in the interests of archetypal psychology, I love to talk with people about what are their favorite books, movies, TV shows, songs, pieces of music, singers, actors, plays, favorite locations, favorite destinations, even if you just imagine them, and what attracts you to them. And I use these cultural things in particular, because by and large, culture is what connects us with the depths, connects us with the archetypal level, even if we don't realize it. So in the previous episode, you heard me talking about Tina Turner, one of my favorites. And the point I want to make is that when it comes to our favorite things, we did not choose them. You know, as a little kid, when I was listening to all kinds of music and I was listening to the radio, I would listen to albums that family members had. I had a response where I really liked that and I really didn't like that." That is the heart of Venus and attraction, is that I didn't choose that. It's just a response. It's an aesthetic response. And that's essentially what the heart of beauty is about when Hillman writes about it and starts off with psyche worshiping in the temple of Venus, in the temple of beauty, in the temple of attraction. What is the soul drawn to? And Hillman starts off with two of the greatest attractions in Western cultural history. And I'm saying two of the greatest, not the two greatest, because there's of course more. This is an archetypal dynamic. But it starts with Dante and Beatrice. Dante, who wrote the Inferno as part of the Divine Comedy, When he saw a young girl named Beatrice, she took his breath away. If we reduce it to calling it love at first sight, it's like an understatement of what it was like for Dante to see Beatrice. She fired up his soul and the same goes for Petrarch and Laura. Petrarch saw this young girl, Laura, and had the same kind of response. Now, what's important is that they never actually had relationships with these girls. But the effect of seeing them was that powerful. It had such an effect on their soul. And that's the power of Venus. We can't help ourselves. We don't choose these things. They choose us. They're like imaginative signposts. You know, the myth of Ur from Plato says that when we are born, our soul forgets where it came from. We drink from the river of forgetfulness. When we're born, we forget why we are here. We forget the whole setup from before we were born. And I like adding in the myth here that says, the reason we're born is that something really interested us. We wanted to be here. Souls were hanging outside the earth on trees or or however you want to imagine it before we're born. But souls are watching the events of Earth, and suddenly something was super interesting. And that soul said, I want to be born so that I can go experience that. And then you drink from the river of forgetfulness. And I might be crossing my myths here, but it works. You drink from the river of forgetfulness, and then you're born. But I feel like underneath the forgetting, is the deep remembering that comes through with attraction. Because who can explain why we love the things we love? Why we're attracted to what we're attracted to? What captivates us? Another reason I think Hillman titling the first part of his essay, The Captive Heart, is so that we can free ourselves from that collective captivity that comes through deep history and reconnect with what our own hearts are captivated by for real. What first took your breath away. And it doesn't have to be of course, anything that anyone else finds attractive. That's the power of it. That's the beauty of it. That's one of the great mysteries of it. So I want to suggest that this Venus retrograde period, is a period to spend time paying attention to your attractions and paying attention to that part of your soul. Now, if we go back to other significations of Venus in astrology, Venus rules, desire, love, beauty, cleanliness, and purity, which I find interesting. And I will immediately separate it from Puritanism, which is completely different. Venus rules the sense of smell. Venus in traditional astrology rules the sense of smell, and in modern astrology, opens up to all of the senses, all of the five senses. When I was in Paris a number of years ago, for a very short time, I was in a medieval museum which houses the tapestries of the lady and the unicorn. So I didn't have much time in Paris and I spent the better part of an afternoon looking at these tapestries, these huge tapestries. And there are six of them. So the first five each represent one of the five senses. And then the sixth tapestry represents the mysterious sixth sense. There's something very archetypal about being in that room looking at those tapestries. It's hard to describe. But Venus awakens that aesthetic sense, which by and large in Western culture is reduced to superficiality and then judged as superficial. I love talking about superficiality without any sense of judgment, because there's something inherently Venusian about superficiality that isn't just shallow. I haven't seen the Barbie movie, but I expect that's part of what it's getting at. So now one of the things with retrograde is that as the planet is approaching its station, where it stops and changes direction before moving again, looking like it's moving backwards in the sky, is that it slows down. It doesn't come to an abrupt halt it slows down. It gently stops and then moves very slow during the retrograde period, eventually stopping again before moving forward and then picking up speed. If I go into my imagination with Venus doing this, I imagine it more like a ballet than anything else. There's an elegance to the period. And again, if we stretch it out on a linear timeline, And then just think about the way we're living our lives if we're really rushing around and doing everything, going really fast, being super busy. Venus's station might feel much more like an abrupt halt, or you might even miss it. And you're thinking, Sean, ballet, what? But the nature of Venus ruling Taurus, for example, brings out the enjoyment factor, brings out the fun. Brings out her playfulness. It's really hard to engage the senses moving at lightning speed. Fast food is not Venusian. One of the things that Hillman points out is that beauty arrests motion. You know, when Dante saw Beatrice, he wasn't just running by and then turned to look back as he was passing by. He was stopped in his tracks And you know, if you want a direct line to how influential Dante's attraction to Beatrice was on our entire Western culture, this girl he had no relationship with, but who fired up his soul. He has that famous line from the Inferno, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood where the direct way was lost. It is a hard thing to speak of, how wild, harsh, and impenetrable that wood was, so that thinking of it recreates the fear. This is famous and often used in Jungian psychology, but it's actually the kind of line that inspired Into the Woods, that musical I've been talking about. That description from Dante can be seen in Into the Woods which if you didn't know, is also a movie starring Meryl Streep. But it's great to see it on the stage because any group of actors who can pull off those lyrics and that music and those rhythms and that timing is really impressive. But beauty stops you in your tracks. You want to stop and enjoy it. And in typical Hillman fashion, he goes on to say, If beauty arrests motion, motion eradicates beauty. And I don't mind sharing that I have my progressed Venus in the sign of Taurus. And I keep that line from Hillman on my wall. Remember my wall from episode one? That quote is on the wall as a reminder. And of course, life gets in the way at times and all of that. You know, it's life. That's why I have the reminder. So keeping all of this in mind now, I want to focus on Venus squaring Uranus. Venus in Leo, retrograde, squaring Uranus in Taurus. The exact dates are it first happened on July 2nd, it next happens on August 9th, and then happens again on September 29th. Now, Venus-Uranus is really quite important when we look to the myth of Uranus. And I personally end up talking about myth far less than one might expect from somebody interested in depth psychology and psychological astrology, with big pieces of the foundations of both in myth. And it's largely because I think it's too easy to interpret these literally, to interpret myth literally. And I've learned from Hillman how important it is to hear the metaphor. And even when I hear the metaphor, can I explain it? So pondering the myth of Uranus, it can be very difficult to get to that poetic basis of the mythology, but there's something really important in the story, in the myth of Uranus because it sees us through to the birth of Aphrodite. So at the start of the myth, Uranus is the sky in love with the earth, with Gaia. They make love every night and produce a gazillion children. And basically there's too many of them and Uranus finds them ugly and stuffs them back into Gaia, which just sounds very uncomfortable. Now, one of these gazillion children is Saturn or Kronos. So Saturn is a child of Gaia and Uranus. And Saturn and Gaia hatch a plan where Saturn is brought in to castrate Uranus. And when he does, he flings the genitals into the ocean. And from the semen is born Aphrodite and from the blood, the furies are born. What do you do with this myth? What I take from this, if I read it mythically and read it as metaphor, the combination of the sky and the earth is full of boundless creativity, infinite possibilities, and infinite possibilities is associated with ugliness. You know, they could have just kept going at it and producing all of these children, but it just amounts to productivity, whatever comes, and Uranus isn't impressed. He thinks they're ugly. The key word is ugly. When we bring in Saturn, the important thing about the castration, endless possibilities, limitless possibilities, come to an end. Uranus no longer has the means to procreate, and that's when beauty is born. So to say it another way, as creative human beings with endless possibilities of how we want to create and how we want to create our lives, and any artist is familiar with the endless possibilities of what to create, and I don't just mean painters or composers, I mean anyone, I mean, architects, I mean, people coming up with a business, anything like this that we could look at from an artistic lens, from a creative lens. Once a choice is made and you've cut off, you've severed all other possibilities, that gives you the chance to create something beautiful. It also creates the furies, which I think any artist can recognize if you tone it down to frustration, the frustration of having to make a choice. Mythically, it's infuriating because the idea of endless possibilities is so invigorating, it's so life-affirming to be in touch with that potential for fertility. But it's in cutting off all the other possibilities that beauty is born, not only born, but able to come to land. To come on to the land. So when Venus and Uranus are in the sky together, something in what I just talked about might be invoked, or beauty could be born. Now that's all vague and up in the sky in Uranian fashion. But given that Uranus is also the liberator, Venus-Uranus can be that time when the myth is invoked, and instead of paying attention to the endless possibilities of creation, if your heart is even the least bit free of the captivity that Hillman talks about, beauty can be born from the heart, from the essences of what is going on in your heart. So that's Venus Uranus. Now to talk about Venus and Jupiter, I'm not going to go as mythic or perhaps even mythic at all. Really to talk about Venus and Jupiter, I want to put the myth aside. In terms of the dates, Venus first squared Jupiter on June 11th, Venus retrograde in Leo will square Jupiter on August 22nd, and Venus direct will square Jupiter for a third time on September 17th. Now, quite frankly, I love this Venus-Jupiter combination. Venus retrograde in Leo, moving very slow, connecting to the heart, Jupiter in Taurus, This is like the essence of slow-moving tortoise, sloth-like energy, lazy lion on the savannah yawning. In all of Venus's time moving through Leo, including the retrograde, I would call this peak enjoyment. Even considering Venus's initial opposition to Pluto, even taking into account living at the limits of the world even taking into account the mess that the world is in right now. I'm not going to get into it in this podcast, but there's a reason that Hillman joined these two essays in one volume, the thought of the heart and the soul of the world. There's just something about when one is in touch with the imaginative heart and not in any rush to do anything because Venus is not about work. In the timeline of dates, of Venus's movement through Leo. She's not connecting up with Saturn. She's not connecting up with Mars. File this under no work necessary. Mark those Venus-Jupiter days on your calendar and take the day off. These are times to invest in enjoyment. And quite frankly, I spread that across this whole Venus time. When I'm saying that I'm also embracing what Hillman would describe as living in an Aphroditic cosmos, which again, I point you back to the end of my Saturn and Pisces episode to hear more about that. Venus retrograde and Leo squaring Jupiter and Taurus might be really annoying if your goal is productivity. And at the same time, if you're creating something, it might be a very productive time, but not in the sense of work, not in the sense of duty, obligation, responsibility, nothing like that. Now in traditional astrology, one thing I love is how the significations of the planets are so specific and thorough. Venus is associated with this, long list. Saturn is associated with that, long list. You know, it gets very specific. And I love that Jupiter is associated with the nobility, the aristocracy, the gentry, the gentlemen, which I surmise also to mean part of the leisure class, the folks who don't have to work. This is part of why I'm talking about it the way that I am. Venus, Jupiter. When Venus gets very demanding, it might be because you're working too much, not paying attention to Venus. But it's also that when we talk about Jupiter and the aristocracy and the nobility and the leisure class, it was back in the day, literal, but psychologically, in the modern world, we know that this is archetypal. And Jupiter is also associated with the law. I've heard more and more about that as traditional astrology has come more on the scene in recent years, and it's always baffled me, to be honest. I love it when something makes sense and I get that archetypal root. And I get that it goes right down there. It makes complete sense. I know it. I don't need to understand it. I just know it. And then everything flowers from that. But Jupiter and the law, I'm like, well, he's king of the gods. Okay. But Jupiter coming up with laws? And so I sit with things. I wonder about things. And I was recently watching an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which for my money is one of the best shows out there right now. And I'm not even like a tried and true Trekkie. I just think it's a brilliant show. And this episode was a courtroom episode. And I'm listening. And a civil rights attorney says, Do you know why I love the law? Because a law is not a mirror of society. A law is an ideal, a beacon to remind us how to be our better selves. And when I heard that, I immediately understood Jupiter and the law. That brought it all home because that's so Jupiterian, what she said. A law is an ideal, a beacon to remind us how to be our better selves. So we may not be nobility. We may not be aristocracy. But where Jupiter is in our chart, that's where in our soul we can imagine being so without the corruption, without bringing in the word privilege. It's a place where we're all privileged, with the capacity to be our better selves. Combine that with Venus and the luxury of the leisure class, that's what I'm working with. Venus-Jupiter. So once Venus stations direct on September 3rd, she will square Jupiter on September 17th, square Uranus on September 29th, and then enter Virgo on October 8th. And with that, we'll move into some charts. Now I've just got a bunch of charts to talk about. I've picked these charts because they're fun. They capture something about what I've been talking about in this episode. They generally do not focus on relationship, but given that this is a podcast and not a webinar, not a course, not a curriculum, even though you're hearing what influences me, these are just things to consider for the rest of Venus's time in Leo. Leo in general, and Venus retrograde. The first one is a man named Gene Burkhard. And I do want to mention the fact that he was born in 1930, with the Sun in Cancer conjunct Pluto in Cancer, but also Jupiter in Cancer conjunct Mercury in Cancer. Those sit opposite Saturn in Capricorn, and we have a T-square particularly with Sun-Pluto, opposite Saturn, with both of them squaring Uranus in Aries. And then, of course, Venus in Leo at 21 degrees, which happens to be squaring Mars in Taurus at 25 degrees. Even though I don't have a birth time, there's a really good chance the Moon is in Sagittarius. Now, if you just want to skip anything that I'm saying about this chart you can go right to a documentary and learn all about this guy. He was the founder of a magazine catalog called International Mail, M-A-L-E. And the documentary is called All Man, The International Mail Story. So it's the story of Gene Burkhard and this catalog magazine called International Mail. And this is why I wanted to mention Venus and the feminine and talking about gender because it's a catalog magazine of men's clothing. And when it was very popular, it emerged in the late 1970s through the 80s into the 90s. This documentary and this catalog are from a time when what it meant to be a man is very different than what it means to be a man today especially when it came to the clothes that one was wearing. So International Mail was a magazine catalog of men's clothing that Jean Burkhart brought into a world where men's fashion was extremely limited, you know, dominated, as they say in the documentary, by the gray flannel suit and a white shirt. Not a lot of color going on. But what's striking to me in particular, listening to the story, is how it changed the potential for the clothes that men wore by bringing Venus onto the scene, by bringing color, by bringing fashion into things. And Gene Burkhart had no education in this, no degree, went by instinct, went by his own imagination. For example, he was walking in San Diego by a medical device or a medical store, and saw something in the window of this medical store. And it was a device, I forget what it was called, but it looks kind of like a medical jockstrap. Gene went into the store, bought one, and turned it into an item in international mail catalog called the jock sock. I texted one of my friends when I was watching this documentary, because it's, it's, it's like a blast from the past watching this documentary because I knew this catalog quite well back in the day and I texted my friend and I just said, I'm watching the international mail story. And he immediately texted back, I had the sock, which he was referring to the jock sock from the eighties that was from this catalog. It was fashionable underwear. And even though this magazine appealed so much to gay men because of the models that it used, the fashions that it was showing, And remember, this is the late 70s into the 80s. Very different than today. It was a magazine for all men, clothes for all men to wear. And I found it stunning that Gene Burkhart and the people he picked up along the way created this and made it an international phenomenon without having business degrees, without having fashion degrees, without studying these things, just going by instinct and figuring out along the way. This is truly following the heart. This was long before the internet. It was a mail order catalog, M-A-I-L. And as much as this catalog captures the spirit of the times and dropping Venus into the spirit of the times, and seeing how she can shake things up by adding color and adding style and adding beauty. It also shows the limitations of the times, particularly in terms of the lack of diversity in the models in the magazine. And the documentary talks about that. But Jean Burkhart with Saturn in Capricorn squaring Uranus in Aries, and Uranus also squaring his son and Pluto, was born into a very conservative family But when you have Uranus and Aries and you bring the sun in and throw in Venus and Leo, you get somebody who changed the lives of men forever by breaking out of that conservative package of Saturn and Capricorn and repackaging it, redesigning it from his own imagination. And I'm not exaggerating that. How much of the international mail catalog was organic cannot be underestimated. Very powerful. The documentary starts with Matt Bomer, who's the narrator, saying, Once upon a time, a small band of outsiders formed an unlikely family. And together, they created something that would change the way men would look at themselves and how the world would look at them. Fashion expert Carson Cressley says of the magazine, it was really masculine guys in pretty, not masculine outfits. So next I want to mention Beauty and the Beast, the Disney movie. Why am I not surprised that it has Venus at 25 degrees of Leo squaring Pluto at 18 degrees of Scorpio beauty and the Beast, Barbie and Oppenheimer just saying. Now, if you think of everything that I've talked about so far, especially with the thought of the heart, and re-watch Beauty and the Beast, and add in this element from Hillman's section in that essay called The Heart of Beauty, he also talks about ugliness, and quotes the ancient philosopher Plotinus, who said, we possess beauty when we are true to our own being. Ugliness is in going over to another order. And I think that's the essence of what Beauty and the Beast is about. It's not subjective beauty, beauty in the eye of the beholder. It's that when we are in touch with that imaginative heart as a foundation, we are beautiful. And when we turn away from that, things get ugly. At the beginning of the story, the prince has turned over to another order and is cursed. I think that's what it's telling us. And the relationship with beauty is what restored him to his true self. So we can extrapolate that into romantic love and into relationships, but I ultimately think it's an archetypal story about the importance of beauty, not even about relationships necessarily. It's the relationship between beauty and ugliness, where ugliness is turning over to a different order. So next up, I have to mention Danielle Steele, obviously the writer of a thousand million romance books. If you don't know this, you probably won't be surprised to hear this. It's just wonderful the way this stuff works out. She was born with Mercury at six degrees Leo, and then Pluto, and then Saturn, and then Venus, and then the Sun, all in Leo a stellium for the ages. And whatever you think of her, she is coming from the heart, whatever you think of the books. Now, I say that because while I haven't read any of her romance books, I actually have one that I might read during this Venus retrograde period. One thing that I love doing is when I'm in a bookstore and I see that Danielle Steele has a new book out, in hardcover, I always flip it over to look on the back because there's yet another photograph of her in some kind of outfit, some dazzling image, some dazzling photograph that relates to the book. It's always fun to see what Daniel still gets up to on the back cover of her books. But back in the day, I read a book by her called His Bright Light which is her story. I mean, it's true. She tells about her son who struggled mightily with bipolar syndrome. She tells the story of her son's struggles and her struggles with them, and eventually his suicide at age 19 by a drug overdose. It's an incredibly moving book, and I felt compelled to write her a letter to thank her for writing it. I was in my twenties and I just, that's the kind of thing I did. I was so moved by the book and she wrote back. So I am the proud owner of a piece of beautiful pink stationery, at the bottom of which was printed every single book title she had published at that point. Remember, she's got all those planets in Leo and she's going to show it off. And she wrote a very sweet letter thanking me for my letter, and it's addressed to Miss Sean Nygard. I love it because back in the day, it just I guess was assumed that a female would be reading Daniel Steele, and that a female would be the one writing to her. So to Daniel Steele, I am Miss Sean Nygard. Next up is Whitney Houston, a Sun in Leo conjunct Venus in Leo. And all I'm going to say about her is five words I will always love you. Well, plus, I have to comment on the beauty of her voice and the power of her voice, and that she started off as a model. And of course, she sang about the greatest love of all. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. We can take that as a cliched self help dictum or we can go back to the thought of the heart as the seat of imagination and file that under the greatest love of all. Next up is Tom Cruise, who has Venus at 19 degrees Leo. And I wanted to mention him because he is a great example of playing to his archetypal nature. You know, he was born with Saturn at 10 degrees in Aquarius, exactly conjunct the south node at 10 degrees of Aquarius, and he moved around a gazillion times as a kid, so he was always an outsider. Saturn and Aquarius exactly conjunct the south node. One of the first movies he was in was The Outsiders. And he's also born with Mars' tightly square Uranus, which emphasizes this outsider factor And by and large, most of his movies stick to this motif. You know, when I talk about imagination, when I talk about images, one of the phrases from archetypal psychology is stick to the image, which is to stick with those essential images that are in your heart. And that's authentic. You know, and Mars Uranus is the maverick. It's risky business. In Far and Away, he was the family member who broke with tradition and sailed across an ocean to pursue the life he wanted. In Jerry Maguire, he makes himself the outsider by choice. Mars Saturn might be considered mission possible. Mars Uranus would certainly be mission impossible. And next up is the movie Ratatouille, the Pixar movie which premiered with Venus at 21 degrees Leo conjunct Saturn at 22 degrees Leo. This is a movie about a very Venusian rat. Totally full of charm. But remember that Venus rules the sense of smell in particular? You know, I think of perfumes and such. Well, one of the first things you get to know about Remy the rat in this movie is he says, I have a highly developed sense of taste and smell. If you watch the movie, hear him say that and follow that trail throughout the entire movie from the lens of Venus. It's just brilliant. And the Venus Saturn here is that the dad doesn't really care about what Remy cares about. He's like, so you can smell ingredients. So what? And he puts him to work testing for poisons because he could smell out the poisons. So he wanted to make Remy utilitarian. But it's ultimately the story of a Venusian rat who learns to follow his own heart. So if you've never seen it or if you've seen it and haven't seen it for a while, I could recommend watching it while Venus is retrograde in Leo. Next up is Caspar David Friedrich, who was born in 1774, a painter from the Romantic era, born with Venus in Leo at 12 degrees. I'm familiar with his work, but when I was reading that book recently called Magnificent Rebels, they bring him in at the end and say the German painter Caspar David Friedrich translated the new ideas from Romanticism, and onto canvases, his lonely figures, which were often self-portraits, are depicted in vast, deserted landscapes, contemplating nature. The painter should not only paint what he sees, Friedrich said, but also what he sees within him. Inspired by the original writers in the emergent Romantic era in Germany, Friedrich explored the relationship between the self and the external world. Now, it's interesting to note that he has Venus in Leo squaring, Jupiter retrograde in Taurus. Now, I've got a couple of examples here of Venus in a natal chart retrograde. The first one is Kygo, K-Y-G-O. If you don't know who that is, he's a Norwegian DJ. And I was trying to look at things and figure out how to talk about different ways to talk about Venus retrograde, rather than just relationships and going back to December all the time. And Kygo is a great example, because first of all, he's a DJ, a musician. And with Venus retrograde at 21 degrees of Leo, one of the things that he's done as part of his career is he remixed and brought back Whitney Houston singing Higher Love. Now I will add that Kygo has Venus in Leo conjunct Jupiter in Leo. And if you think about what I was talking about, Jupiter and that higher self, there's also this higher love quality when Jupiter and Venus get together. And of course, Whitney Houston was born with Venus in Leo. So this idea of going back and bringing focus on something feminine, in this case, women, because he also brought back Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It and remixed it, and then did Donna Summer's Hot Stuff with a remix. So part of his career with Venus Retrograde has been bringing back into the spotlight something feminine, which I think is pretty cool. Now, Amy Winehouse was born with Venus retrograde at 23 degrees of Leo conjunct Mars. I don't have a lot to say about her, but I would encourage watching the great documentary about her. I forget what it's called. But essentially, when I talked earlier about something in the soul being naturally retro, naturally retrograde, that embodies Amy Winehouse, I feel. Just listening to her, you're transported to a different era. And of course, given her struggles and given the things that she would circle back to that she struggled with in terms of addiction and drugs, alcohol, you know, her famous album is Back to Black. So she's exploring these things and bringing them out through music. And the last example I have is a pair of charts, essentially. Again, a little bit of an off-ball example, but intriguing all the same, is that in 1991, the singer Nancy Griffith released an album called Late Night Grand Hotel when Venus was retrograde in Leo. And the title song is a beautiful song about picking yourself up again after a relationship has gone bad. And I will say that When the album was released, Venus was conjunct Jupiter in Leo, Venus Retrograde. And the title song says, I am just learning how to fly away again. Lift your spirits after a down time. And as part of the song, she sings, I feel like Garbo in this late night grand hotel. Which, of course, with my astrologer hat on, I go type in Greta Garbo, and Greta Garbo was born with Venus at 19 degrees of Leo, Venus opposite Saturn in Aquarius, and her famous line, I want to be alone. So there's just something I, th- I feel iconic about, referencing Greta Garbo in a song called Late Night Grand Hotel, with Venus retrograde looking back at a bygone era to an actress born with Venus in Leo. One of the things I'm going to do when Venus is retrograde is watch grand hotel. Cause I've never seen it. And now to bring this episode to a close, to bring the curtain down on all the world's a stage, Leo, Venus in Leo and Venus retrograde in Leo, almost by way of instructions, but it's not work despite what it says in the quote I'm going to read. This is from Albert Camus, and he says, A man's work, and of course this is anyone's work, A man's work is nothing more than to rediscover through the detours of art those one or two images in the presence of which his heart first opened. And similarly, from W.B. Yeats, by way of John Moriarty, there is for every man, and of course, this is from an era where that was just how things were said, but there is for everyone some one scene, some one adventure, some one picture that is the image of his secret life. For wisdom first speaks in images, and this one image, if he would but brood over it his whole life long, would lead his soul disentangled from unmeaning circumstance and the ebb and flow of the world into that far household where the undying gods await all whose souls have become simple as flame, whose bodies have become quiet as an agate lamp. We can stamp Nobel laureate on that. But you hear the similarity in the two quotes, and I would just differ from Yeats in saying it's not just one scene, but that's a place to start. But this idea that there are essential images in the heart, essences of the heart that get expressed through the imagination in creating your life and living your life, to focus on that while Venus is retrograde would be time well spent. And I love doing readings. And if anybody wants to discuss any of these things during a reading, I have ways of talking about the chart that start to reveal these things. So everything I've been talking about can absolutely be part of astrology readings. You can email me through my website at imagineastrology.com. And until next time, this is Sean Nygard with Imagine That a podcast for astrology and archetypes.